Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil Huber, joined by the usuals, Logan and John. Today's episode number 86, where we look at the newest issue of Popular Woodworking Magazine, and we also discuss the worst part of woodworking. Hope you enjoy today's show. Let's get started. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Magazine. Woodsmith Magazine has been the trusted source for all your woodworking information for over 40 years. From tips and techniques to furniture projects to shop projects, you'll find it all at Woodsmith Magazine. Subscribe today at woodsmith.com. So as part of the normal staffing of the company here, we have people that are forced to interact with us woodworkers from time to time. And they do so with reluctance, <laughs> reluctance sometimes, or general grace. One of those people is Nate, who mm-hmm. is going to be editing this episode. And he was helping out while we were filming yesterday and asked the question, what is the worst part of woodworking? And it, I think it was kind of John and I mm-hmm. talked about it with him and came up with some ideas that we'll talk about. But for him, it was because he edits a lot of our videos and he's he's seen other woodworking videos. And, you know, one of the common ones is finishing probably because it's not really what you think of as woodworking. You know, it's kind of like after it's done, so to speak, and it's more chemistry rather than working with wood. Right. Yeah, it always seems that's what I know the least about. It's just kind of a hope and a prayer that it works out. Which is funny because that mentality really bothers me because you can take a you can take the best built project and run it with a bad finish Mm -hmm. or a finish can elevate a project. So it's like, it's a make or break. Yeah. So I, I mean, and I get it, but you're that, you're that invested into the project and then it's do or die. Right. Yeah. But yeah, what I told Nate was actually, um, the lead up to the finish is the least enjoyable part where, you're sanding and cleaning up uh, glue squeeze out and any blemishes and uh, kind of the fine details because everything leading up to that, you're seeing large gains or changes and feeling that accomplishment. And then it's just a lot of kind of what should be invisible work. Um, up to that point. So it seems like you're doing a lot of work and not gaining much uh, between the finishing the pro- or finishing the project and finishing the project. <laughs> if that right. makes sense. But yeah, be- before you get to the completion of yeah. when the project is ready to get mm-hmm. put to use in whatever way that's going to get. Yeah. That's true. It's it's like uh you know the town where I live recently built a new elementary school and it's on one of the routes that I walk my dog on. So it's 
been fun to see these last two years, the progress as it goes from tearing down the old school and building the new school, mm -hmm. you know, and it felt like since almost November of last year that they weren't doing anything on it because the main structure was up, all the windows were in for the most part, you know, and it's all the stuff that's on the inside that you can't see from the outside. It's like, there's a lot of people here for what looks like very little progress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same with woodworking where you get to that, like you were saying, John, the preparation to apply finish where you're just doing all the punch list items. Right. That feel like they're going to end up being invisible in the finished or in the completed project. But if you don't take care of them, they will become extremely noticeable. Right. Yeah. Which is funny too, because it's like at the beginning of a project, a lot of times I'm working with um, like rough lumber. So it's a lot of, um, breaking down lumber or flattening or squaring and planing and, and getting it just to a use a, a state of usable lumber. So that seems like a lot of work without much project, uh, progress, but I, f I find that more enjoyable. It's like going on a long vac driving somewhere on a long vacation where it's like, we have a 10 to 20 hour drive with the kids. And on the way there, you're all excited because you're going to get there. But then that same drive seems two to three times as long on the way back because it's like, <laughs> Ugh, we're just going home. We're just yeah. finishing this project. So, yeah, getting started and, and doing that kind of like heavy work without much progress is a little more exciting than when you get to it down the home stretch. So it's definitely the lead up to the finish for me. See, it's funny because, like Phil said, I mean, I would I would agree with you guys that that's one of the least enjoyable parts to me is that that prep up to finishing. Between glue up clamps are coming off, final fittings done. Now you got to sand it. Now you got to make sure everything's ready to apply a finish. I love finishing. I love it. Like because it's it's one of those like super gratifying things that you really you finally see what it's gonna look like, right? Yeah. So I love that part of it. But you're right that that surface prep really sucks, and it's even I mean it is as much, and maybe this is my own skewed opinion because I you know do a lot of woodworking. It, that is also a make or break thing, um, and. I've started noticing it more recently, uh, maybe just because I, I look for it more, uh, but we recently had, uh, uh, we were moving some furniture and a couple, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, my grandpa had commissioned somebody to make him um, a handful of curio tables out of some pecan that we, we milled. And I always thought, wow, the, the guy that did these did a really nice job. And he did, he did a beautiful job on them. They turned out really nice. They had cabriole legs on them. Um, but as I started carrying them, the pigtail swirls I could see from finishing, from sanding, it was like, right. whole, like they're all over. Like it wasn't just one or two spots he missed. <laughs> it was a consistent scratch pattern. <laughs> but it's like, oh man, it's like that's that's the type of stuff that really drives me nuts. That I hate 
I hate taking my time to get rid of it, but I take my time to get rid of it because it drives me nuts, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah. So. Yeah, I have a small dresser that I made. It was one of my early pieces from... It was shortly after I graduated from high school. And the top is clear finished maple. And it's very evident that I did not sand enough at all because you can still see the planar chatter marks on there and it just looks and that you didn't really see them before then but you know it was just one of those things where this is a has has the potential to be that much better of a project taking a few extra steps on it and i wonder if that's the reason why people don't like sanding you know, cause I was going to say, that's another one, you know, either finishing or sanding. Cause, and you often see that with articles and I try and stop myself from writing it. When you write about sanding, you know, to make it, it's, it's like received wisdom that we have to talk about how drudgery inducing sanding is. And I don't, I don't know that I would say that it's my favorite part of woodworking, but I don't hate it. It's kind of fun to be able to see a clean surface come out of the process. Yeah. You know, I've, I've mentioned it before. I don't mind the actual process of sanding. Like I just throw my earbuds in, I listen to an audiobook, and I just go, you know, go to town. But the one thing, and I've, I've said this before, the one thing that really changed my view on sanding, and the last time I said it, somebody commented on the podcast and said the same thing, that buying a quality sander really changed their approach to sanding. And once I bought my Merca, it completely changed. Like, I don't dread it anymore. I still don't enjoy it, but I don't dread it anymore. Like, I would have a project just completely finished, and it'd just sit there for weeks because, like, I don't want to go sand it. I don't want to sand it. <laughs> no sanding for me. Yeah, definitely having a quality uh, sander and sandpaper and changing the sandpaper often. Right. Don't try to overuse the sandpaper. Definitely helps. Yeah. Well, I think that I really learned that once I really started turning on how quickly you can smoke sandpaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and it's not necessarily the the action of sanding, at least not on the lathe, it's not the action of sanding that really destroys the sandpaper, it's the heat built up, build up. Um, or if you're trying to sand something that has like a sanding sealer on it, it gums up and clogs up and stuff. And there's a point where I'm like, you know what? It's not worth trying to save this piece of sandpaper because my time is more valuable than this piece of sandpaper. Right. Like, I will just rip that thing off, throw a new piece on. It might have a little life left to it, but a new piece of paper gets the job done way faster. Yeah. You know, and going back to the finishing issue, you know, you you were talking, Logan, about how you enjoy the process of finishing and being able to see that piece kind of come to life, you know, because once you have it sanded and ready for finish, you know, any of the colors in the material are pretty muted. No matter what you make it out of, it always seems to have like a dull gray or yep. whatever look to it. But then you see that finish go on. And I wonder if, get your thoughts here, 
if the reason that some people don't like finishing is twofold. One, it comes towards the end of the process and people are ready to have the project complete. And two is a failure to appreciate finishing as a technique and a tool, so to speak, that you don't understand what it does or what's going on. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I would I would throw in there that they also don't enjoy it because they're not they're not using the right sandpaper or they're you know they're using a quarter pad quarter sheet pad sander. <laughs> but still waiting for somebody to write in and let me know why that <laughs> is their preferred sanding tool. Uh, still waiting. Fits in the corners. <laughs> I mean, that's it, fair. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. If you're trying to sand a the bottom of a drawer or a door flat door panel or cuz you didn't do it before you right. assembled. That's I would say do all those things before it's assembled. You're going to yeah. be a lot happier. But Yeah, and that's another thing that I've learned too is do some sanding as you go so you're not fighting all the little corners and details and you know before assembly or um as some sub assemblies and and whatnot and that will help the process a lot because the more complex it gets the harder it is to sand so. right oh yeah for sure yeah i i like to think that if i was retired and at some point in my life i hope to do so and I wasn't in a hurry to build anything, which my wife would tell you that I'm never in a hurry to build anything. Uh, <laughs> I would like to think that I would take the time to, like John said, sand as I go. But I would also like to think that I would utilize something like the drum sander a little bit more. And it could just be, I don't... Changing the sandpaper on our drum sander here, I'm not going to say what brand it is, but changing the paper on our sandpaper here is a pain in the butt. It's not fun. I think if it was like a one of those drum sanders that had the big drum you slid on, then it'd be like, okay, I could legitimately, you know, sand it with like a 120 drum, a 180 drum, and a 220 or 240 drum. And have a majority of the sanding just done through there with just by, you know, on the flat surfaces. Yeah. And I, I would like to think that I would do that as I went. Uh, I'm, this may just be rose-colored glasses. Um, and, you know, as a non-retired person, uh, I would like to think that I would do that as I go. And I also would like to think that I would pre-finish. Because it's mm. something we always, it's always one of those say it, do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> like, especially if you're painting a project. Like, I don't know how many times I have built a project knowing full well that it's going to be painted. And I, I despise brushing. Despise brushing and I despise painting unless I'm spraying it. If I'm spraying it, I really like it. It's really fun to get that right viscosity and it just sprays nice and evenly. I enjoy that. But it always ends up that I'm reaching inside of a cabinet to spray something and I'm closing my eyes and my mouth. <laughs> well, I have a respirator. I'm, I'm closing my eyes and, you know, because all the paint's blowing back at you and stuff. Um, I would always, I would like to think that I would also pre-finish 
more. Sure. So some of those hard to reach areas because let's face it, the underside of my dining room table doesn't have near the amount of finish that the top does. Enough to seal it and right. hopefully keep it from, you know, cupping or anything, but I don't know. Yeah. So let me ask you guys this. Um, again, I think we've all said, we've come to agreeance that finishing's not the, the worst part, but for some people it is. Would it, would your view on finishing be different if we did not have the finishing room here? I think so. I mean, that's, it's just so easy to, <laughs> to go in there and spray. You know, usually you're not mixing anything or, you know, I don't know. It's just, we have a, we have a pressure ways. pot always yes. loaded with lacquer yes. ventilation, one flip of a switch and right. It's ready to go. So there's, yeah, you're not doing anything. Cause you just, I mean, if anything, it's cause it's Monday. So you just open up the pot, stir it a few times and then start but yeah yeah i yes however i've been i've brushed some a, quite a bit of water based finish recently mm -hmm. and i've i i enjoy that process okay but that's in hindsight knowing that i've taken a few years recently to understand both the finish and the what I'm trying to achieve in its application. Sure. And also being okay with investing in the tools to go along with it. Meaning a good water-based finish brush? Meaning a meaning a good water-based finish because there are crappy ones out there. Mm -hmm. And meaning a good water-based finish brush. Yeah. Cuz I think and I think that's the funny part is, you know, people will spend premium dollars on a router bit, you know, so you're looking at a router bit for a project that's 50 to 75 bucks just for the router bit. But you get to the finish and it's like, nope, handful of foam brushes, <laughs> 85 cents a piece, mm -hmm. if that, yep. you know. And it's like, and you're wondering why the application isn't, the finish isn't turning out the way that you want, you know? Yeah. I think part of that is, is along with finishing, people don't know how to like properly clean, get a good clean yeah, on brushes and that kind of fair. thing. And that's the one nice thing about our finishing room is like, you never have any cleanup because right. it's always somebody else's problem. <laughs> so I was going to say, the cleanup is you leave the brush in the sink and you'd be like, I don't know yeah, whose that is. Yeah, <laughs> it's the next guy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm only laughing because it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's guilty of it. Yeah. Or cleaning just means like, I'm going to find some solvent and I'm just going to set the brush in there and it'll be fine. Yeah. It'll yep. I guess come back in two weeks and hopefully yeah. it's yep. not dissolved. Right. That is the, that I, I mean, completely true. That is one part of finishing I do not enjoy is cleaning up, because yeah. I think John's right, uh, or whoever said might have been Phil said cleaning up the brushes. Mm, yeah, that that sucks. Like I always feel like I use way more solvent than I need to, 
because right. I'm not a fan of water based. I'm just not. I don't. I, I don't like the clear. I like the the warmness that oil based finishes give. So it means I'm generally cleaning up with mineral spirits, which is awful. I hate it. Um, but uh, I always am like, I just dumped fifteen dollars worth of mineral spirits to clean up my four dollar brush. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like this is stupid. But I don't uh-huh. know. I've started. I mean, if I'm not spraying a lacquer, um, I've really liked started to like like some of the wipe on finishes, Danish oil and uh, stuff like that, tongue oil. Uh, yeah, and then it's just rags, and then you just wad them up in a ball and put them in your trash can. Yeah, for them to start on fire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Good no, I, <laughs> I I at home I'll actually go lay them out on my burn pile. Um, so if they do burn, it just is speeding up the process. You, you wanted that anyway. I wanted it anyways. Um, but no, I, I just, to me, it's like I always have T-shirts that I'm tearing up into cloths and rags. So it's like, and and that's, I guess that was the the whole point of my question on if we didn't have the finishing room, would your, would your view on finishing be different? Yeah. Uh, because in my shop, I, 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 I don't spray finishes. Um, I, I wipe them on. Um, and I enjoy that process. So, but I do like idiot foolproof finishes because idiot fool. <laughs> so I can do the wipe ons easy. Yeah. What's your preferred finish, John? If you don't use the spray booth. Oh, I trying to think of like the last time I did not spray something. Cause even at home I was, I've been using spray lacquer for a long time. I have a little cup gun and would just open up the garage and oh, really? out there and spray and hopefully leaves and bugs didn't fall on it, but it always seemed to work out. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm always afraid to kind of go off the beaten path. Yeah. So that's kind of always my go-to. Well, I, I will say lacquer is easy to repair too. Like that's one of the easiest, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to repair. Yeah, um, because it burns into itself. If you get a drip, scrape it off with a razor blade. You know, maybe maybe smooth it out with a little bit of lacquer thinner on a on a rag, and then respray, and it will disappear. I did use um, what was it, Old Masters uh, exterior finish the other day. What is that called? Yeah. Ascend. Yeah, the water based one. Yep, yep. I yeah. did a little brush on. I was doing a um our a little plaque for our uh house numbers or whatever on oh. some cedar. So I uh, don't use a lot of exterior finish, so really liked that. It was really easy to use and clean up and that worked out well. So Yeah. No, I've liked it when I've used that that one as well. Mm-hmm. So All right. The other topic that I had for today was to talk about the latest issue of Popular Woodworking magazine. Logan has it right there, mm-hmm. right here for everybody watching one. on the YouTube's. Yep. Yep. So uh, this one, I know that transitioning from the previous editor to you. Mm-hmm. results in a change of vision a little bit for the magazine. Yep. And this is what, your second or third issue? This is the second issue. 
And I feel like this one is where you made the biggest strides in pivoting the voice. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's still some projects. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are still some projects floating out there that um, were agreed upon from previous editors here. Um, and I'm not saying they're bad by any means. Don't don't take it like that. Um, most of them fall in line with what I'm wanting. Uh, but there will be a few over the next couple issues still that departments and projects that I probably would have passed on or I would have requested a different spin on it or a different focus on the sure. article. Um, but the one thing I will say is I have started to get quite a lot of um, emails and letters. I got a card today in my inbox uh, from somebody that just got this previous issue. So it's a lot of people basically saying yes. I mean, not, I mean, that's not, they're not weird about it like that, but uh, they are saying, Hey, these are the type of projects we want to see the articles, techniques, stuff like that. Um, so it, it's good affirmation on what I want to do with the magazine is re resonating with the people that are reading the magazine, because right. as much as what I think the magazine should be, doesn't necessarily mean that's what people want. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what people are going to want to read. So having, you know, people reaching out to me like Tom uh, and I got a couple other emails, uh, people reaching out saying, yes, this is what this needed. This is what we wanted uh, is really cool uh, and really nice to hear. Um, I've also heard from a lot, a lot of almost more so uh, than readers. I've heard from a lot of former popular woodworking editors. Which has been really cool. Uh, a lot of them reaching out saying, "Hey, yes, this is what it needed, and if you want us to write or you want us to build projects, let us know." Which is is super awesome. Yeah. So it's cool. a little weird too. Uh, like, hey, these are people I used to really enjoy reading. Now they're asking me to write. <laughs> like, this is weird. <laughs> this shouldn't happen. <laughs> I'm still 12 years old in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. This uh, this issue uh, is the October 2021 issue. Uh, it is number 261. Um, should be to almost all subscribers now. Uh, and if anybody wants to purchase said copy, I think they are available online to buy. Um, so going through the main projects, um, we have a uh, Shaker-inspired sewing counter by Keenan Oren. Uh, he's a woodworker down in Kansas City. Um, so kind of a cool different take on a Shaker-inspired sewing counter um, for Karen that commented on our Facebook post. Um, I don't think her name was Karen, but I'm calling her Karen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we are very well aware that this shaker sewing counter will not support a sewing machine. The shakers didn't have sewing machines. I am so sorry. So, um, but Keenan did a beautiful job on it. Uh, it is in the it is in the spirit of what the shaker sewing counters were. 
um, fairly small workstations for hand stitching, hand sewing, stuff like that. Um, so that was in there by Keenan. Uh, we also have... I mean, that project is essentially the Shaker Kennedy tool chest for people who are sewing. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So, um, next one, have a uh, hand plane by our very own Dylan Baker. It is also on the front cover. So this is a Ray Z style hand plane, um, which I was I was super uh, happy that Dylan decided to go that route. Um, I try not to. It's Jay Z's cousin, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it's Jay Z's cousin Ray Z. Um, Marvin Marvin Berry. <laughs> uh, initially, Dylan had wanted to build a. Uh, like a German style horned hand plane. Sure. Um, which I don't mind. I don't like using them. Um, and I said, Hey, I have this really cool book. I don't have it with me right now. Uh, I have a, I have a really nice book, uh, by the name by, from a guy by the name of Cecil Pierce. And Cecil's really well known in the like vintage bamboo fly rod world. He was a really well-known fly rod maker, uh, but he started getting into building hand planes. Um, and his uh, his book is called 50 Years, A Plane Maker and User. And it's basically his instruction guide on building hand planes. And I happen to have one of Cecil Pierce's hand planes. Uh, so I bought the book. Um, it's been out of print. He's, he passed away in the, I think, late 80s. Um, but I, I gave it to Dylan, and he started reading it, and he really liked it. So he built this one in the style of Cecil Pierce, uh, which was really cool. Um, I was I was happy he decided to take it on that route. Um, so the the plane turned out really nicely. It is uh, kind of a traditional style, Razy Jack plane. Um, trying to get to the article here. Somewhere in here, there it is. Uh, so, and then there's, if anybody's watching, there's the cover of the book. So, um, kind of a cool, cool little project if you enjoy hand tools, if you enjoy making tools. Or if you don't, it's a good one to try because it's pretty, pretty simple. Um, Dylan did this one out of Beach and, oh, what was the soul he chose? Was Goncalo Alves? Sounded out. Um, Sounded out. <laughs> I I haven't heard of it, but he did, so he bought it, and it, it, it's heavy. It's heavy and dense is why he bought it. Um, so uh, that was a, a good little project. So um, then our other projects in this issue, uh, the dovetailed curly maple tool chest that is on the front cover. Right, uh, kind of a fun little hand tool project. Um, if you want it to be hand tool project, doesn't have to be. Right, um, that was kind of a fun one to watch in development because you've been wanting to make something like yeah, that yeah. for quite a while. I have, yeah, and uh, I mean complete transparency on this. This is based on a uh, tool chest that David Barron built out of the UK. Um, he has one that he was using to travel around with the shows for demonstrations and stuff. This one's significantly bigger than his. His is pretty small. 
Um, but I traveling around and going to uh, the Woodsmith store here or other places doing demonstrations, bring my tools here into the video studio and stuff. I wanted something to put them in that I could fit almost everything. Don't get me wrong. Once that guy's loaded up, it's heavy. Um, it is heavy. It's not something you would carry around to a job site every single day. Uh, but I had a very particular set of tools I wanted to put in it. And trying to f part of that article is kind of explaining my process on what I wanted to put in it, how I sized everything to go right. in it. Uh, so, yeah, that was fun. Um, then some of the other uh, just kind of department e articles. Um, we have some hand cut dovetails. So kind of my steps on hand cutting dovetails kind of to tie in with that tool chest. Um, have a look at a kind of a new hand tool maker on the market, uh, Andrew Kimmins. Um, he is, oh gosh, I should know this because I asked him. Um, but he's a younger guy. He's making these these chisels, Andrew Kimmins chisels. Um, he will have a website up soon if he doesn't have it up already. But he's been making them and selling these chisels on uh, Etsy for a long time. Mm. And everybody, I kept seeing Andrew's name pop up um, in the like hand tool group, uh, some of the hand tool groups on Facebook and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? Like I keep hearing about this. I, I'm going to call him a kid. He's my age. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I keep hearing about this kid. I want to see what, what the deal is. Like, you know, why am I hearing about this guy's chisels? Um, but he's been making these chisels uh, out of, he's in Ohio. He's in Ohio. Uh, but he's been making these chisels. Um, they're now in our video studio. So mm -hmm. you guys, if you watch on uh, the Woodsmith Shop or any of our stuff uh, that we do YouTube-wise or um, for our woodworking essentials, uh, you might see us using them occasionally. Uh, he's making these super high-quality chisels. Uh, they're definitely priced in line with some of the big names like the Lee Nielsen chisels, the Veritas chisels, um, the Blue Spruce. They're along those same price lines, but they're super high quality. And I like the fact that he's a small maker. Um, right. So uh, there's a kind of a spotlight looking uh, at his process and kind of what makes him tick, uh, which is kind of fun. Um, and we also have uh, one of our regulars is a guy by the name of Willie Sandry. Uh, Willie's in the Pacific Northwest. And Willie's kind of carved, well, he'd probably hate me for saying this, but he's probably kind of carved his name in the arts and crafts world. Um, so the previous issue, we had a rocking chair, um, an ebon rocking chair. Uh, it's a Charles Lambert, Lambert? Lambert. Uh, yep, style rocking chair. Um, but uh, kind of a little different for Willie. Um he we have a jigs and fixtures article from him so it is uh willie's take on building a circle cutting jig for your bandsaw does a very nice job very high quality build kind of a laminated uh a laminate top on it doing some t-molding edging so it looks like it looks like a circle cutting jig that you'd buy um but one that willie has bought and made or built and been using in his shop 
And a couple of our other departments that we've been doing kind of on a regular basis is a spotlight on a woodworker that people would maybe not otherwise know. Um, and I'm going to kind of morph this a little bit um, into more of a master's, you know, like a meet the master's type thing. Sure. So people that are really well known, maybe in a specific field um, that are hopefully going to start writing for the magazine kind of as, a, as an introduction. But right now, uh, the spotlights are um, stuff we've published online and we're bringing them now to our print audience. Uh, are are kind of spotlights on um, woodworkers. Uh, some of these might be more makers than woodworkers, um, but uh, this one is a look at uh, kind of in discussion with Alma Villa Lobos. Uh, she's a woodworker out of Chicago. Um, she's kind of made her name. I don't want to say made her name because she's she's a talented woodworker, but she kind of became known because she was making these really cool push sticks for other content creators. So she was doing like, you know, Millennium Falcon push sticks and stuff like that for all these uh, YouTube content creators um, with her CNC. Um, but she's a pretty cool woodworker. Um, she's a mother of a, like an eight-year-old boy, so she does some woodworking with him. Um, so kind of just a little interview with her. And this was one that was really fun. Uh, this was one of my own takes on this guy. Uh, so there's a, a gentleman out in the Northeast, um, I wanna say Maryland, Maine, Massachusetts, somewhere up there, one of those M states. Uh, his name's uh, William Martley. <laughs> They're all the same. You get in the Northeast, it's like Idaho and Iowa. Michigan. It's all the same. Michigan, yeah. yeah. Michigan, Minnesota. yeah. Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Massachusetts. All those states are so little, you just, every 15 minutes, you're in another one. Well, that's what I mean. Except Maine. I mean, Maine's huge, right? Okay. But anyways, <laughs> uh, I don't think I put where William was from. I want to say it's Massachusetts. I'm pretty sure it's Massachusetts. So we're going to say Massachusetts. If he's not from Massachusetts, sorry, William, you're going to have to move. So, uh, but anyways, <laughs> uh, before I, before I show you guys this, uh, Phil, you, did you, you went to Handworks the first year they had it, right? Yep. Okay. Did you happen to do the Studley tool chest? When it was yes, on I did. You mm -hmm. did. Okay. John, did you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, so you're not included on this conversation okay. then. I'll step out. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, but so the Studley tool chest is, a, I mean, really well known tool chest. Uh, it was made by Henry O. Studley uh, back in the 1800s. Uh, Mr. Studley was a, uh, he was the lead. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what his title is, but he worked at a uh, organ company, organ and piano company, and he was like the lead craftsman. So basically, everybody reported to to Henry, and over Henry's boredom, as he manages everybody, he built this this amazing tool chest. It's a it's a wall mounted tool chest uh, that opens up. All the tools are nested together. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows exactly what it is, so I don't need to go in depth on it. But when it was here in Iowa, uh, God, a number of years ago, on display, um, my father-in-law and I went and saw it, um, and 
one of the tools there that just absolutely fascinated me. I mean, it's full of beautiful tools. I mean, everything in there is like ebony and rosewood and, you know, brass and bronze and ivory. And it's just, I mean, it's just gorgeous. But the one tool that I'm like that I want one of those was the studly mallet. Okay. There's a mallet in the, I think it's the upper right hand corner of the tool chest. Uh, And it's an infill mallet. It's made of bronze. Uh, It's stuffed with ebony infills, uh, has an ebony handle on it. It's just, it's gorgeous. Nobody knows who made it. Like nobody knows the maker of it. It was either one that uh, Henry had got from a tool manufacturer and he modified it or he made a pattern and he had it cast something. Nobody really knows where it came from. Uh, But I figured it was probably only, it was going to be a short amount of time before somebody made a casting of it and started selling them. And that's what William Martley did. Uh, so Bill um, was a toolmaker, or I'm sorry, uh, Bill is a retired pattern maker, is what Bill is. Uh, so he used to make patterns for foundries um, to do castings from. So Bill's neighbor uh, introduced him to the Studley tool chest, showed him um, the uh, Don Williams book about the Studley tool chest, uh, and said, hey, you should try to make one of these patterns. Long story short, Bill made the pattern, a foundry down the road from him, pours them, um, casts them out of uh, bronze. Uh, he has done other runs with like gunmetal and white bronze, stuff like that. Uh, but mainly they're sold just with bronze. Uh, and you can buy the casting. So if you're looking at this picture here, uh, right here is the casting as it comes from the foundry. Um, they're sand casted, so there's definitely some uh, roughness to the top. You get that sand texture. Um, they mill the faces of it, so this area here is milled, and the, around the infill area is milled. Um, but uh, so I got one in, and I stuffed it with ebony because why the heck not? Right. Um, so I, I've had a lot of people comment on that, like, "Oh, that's super cool. I never knew that." somebody was making these and Bill messaged me a couple of weeks ago said, Hey, I'm glad I stocked up. And it's like, Oh yeah, I'm glad I could, you know, toss somebody like that a bone. That's uh, kind of a, you know, little guy in the industry um, selling some pretty cool tools. So I think Bill is also working on a larger version because these are just a hair over a pound before they're finished. But these, these castings come in, uh, from the foundry between 16 and 17 ounces. So they're about a pound a piece. Then you add the, whatever you put inside of it. Um, so I think mine's about a pound and a half, uh, but he is going to be making a bigger one. Uh, so I had a super, bunch of people saying, Hey, it was super cool. Little write up on that. Uh, so yeah. So cool. yes, I would say that this issue has a lot of, my influence that sounds weird but kind of like this is what i want to see popwood like um sure a lot of you know it, popwood's not going to be a magazine necessarily that somebody grabs and takes into their shop like woodsmith like woodsmith you're taking in there because you're probably going to build a project you right know, you're going to use those those step-by-step plans and build it this is more of like a you know it's sitting on your you know next to your toilet and you're reading it 
It's it's a story mm-hmm. magazine. <laughs> it's like I mean, yeah, like you could like everything we have in here, the shaker sewing counter, uh, the plane, the tool chest. You could build it based on the dimensions in the magazine, um, but we are also uh, not hand holding them like Woodsmith. If that makes sense, it's more of a you know we're expecting that somebody that's going to attempt to build one of these is going to have the know how and knowledge to do it. Right. With a little bit of guidance, so, so yeah, I just talked for a long time. I'm ready for the hate mail. <laughs> you can send that hate directly to the yes. YouTube's. Uh, right. The, put that in the comments there. Start a yep. good conversation. Yeah, please. <laughs> we like the comments. It, yeah. It's been a while for Logan. He needs his hate <sighs> tank refilled. Yes, right. yes true. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's what fuels him, really. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, I did have, I did have, just to keep talking because I need to get more hate mail. Uh, I did have a lot of comments on my editor letter as well, um, which was kind of fun. Because um, as an talking. editor, I wonder how many people actually read those. Well, and that's yeah, that's something we've always talked about. And that's something we've always uh, always said. It's like, eh, how many people really read those? So actually, the issue we're working on right now, I reduced the size of the editor letter a lot. You know, it went from basically one full page here, like this, yeah, uh, down to a half page because I wanted to give a little bit more um, insight to the contributing writers rather than rather than just having at the end of an article where it says, you know. Logan Wintler is the editor-in-chief of Popular Woodworking Magazine. Like, yeah. I wanted it to be more about the contributing writers who's writing for us and a little bit more background on them. Uh, so I've started including those bios into the front where the editor letter is. But uh, this editor letter in particular was kind of... It was sparked by... Um, it was kind of sparked by Becky, if you can believe it or not. Because... When we were filming, when we were filming the picnic table for the Woodsmith Shop, mm-hmm. season fifteen, uh, I had pieces standing on end, and they fell off the bench and cracked to the edge of one of the pieces. And I'm just, I just picked it up and kept going. And it, she's like, "How do you not get mad at that? Like, how do you not like beat yourself up over it?" It's like, well, because a, I can't really do anything about it. She's like, well, yeah, but that piece is always going to have that crack in it. It's like, well, I could fix it. And yeah, that crack's still going to be there. But does that really matter? So so this whole editor letter was about the pursuit of perfection. And like, there's points where perfection really matters in woodworking. It doesn't really matter in yeah. most cases. Like, do you care if your tenon and mortise are a suction fit where you pull it apart and it goes pop? doesn't really matter as long as it fulfills its duty it doesn't really matter yeah so had a lot of people that it long story short sounded like it resonated with a lot of people so that was fun to see cool so we'll put a link to the magazine on the show notes page and uh, also some of the links for some of the people that were featured there as well so you can find out how to see more of the work that they're doing or mm-hmm. get one of your own mallets or whatever so, yep. Any other updates, projects you're working on? 
No. The next one I have for our next issue is that humidor. I've talked about it a couple times, so I need to, get, need to stop dragging my feet and just get it done. Yep. Yeah, it just seems like I've been in, in front of the computer more doing more design stuff for the magazine recently, but still working on a lot of little home projects at home and uh, trying to clean up the garage, getting ready for the winter season that is coming, that always the hopes of maybe pulling one car in the garage. So right. I feel like I'm getting to that point where it's like time for another wholesale clean out of what needs to stay and what needs to go. It's like what's been hanging around too long. It's time to just to let it go. So I've been doing a lot of that in my shop lately of trying to reclaim some space. It's mostly the kids toys that need to go. Don't tell them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they probably don't even know that they have them. Right. So you can get rid of it and it's totally fine. Yeah. Yep. I think so. Well, we did that around here. There was a lot of tools and accessories and whatnot that we've accumulated over the last 40 years. And we've been trying more and more to get rid of stuff we just don't use or need anymore. But I got a bug in me the other day and went, yeah, through, went through a bunch of cabinets and whatever. Mm -hmm. the, this one got to me because it was, we have all this stuff and it's always been in drawers, so you don't really see it. So from the outside, it's like super organized. However, it's just <laughs> random crap that we just mm -hmm. had. So yeah. I, Logan helped me clean out and we filled up two tables full of stuff and then just send out an email to everybody in the company, like come find stuff that you want and the rest is going to get yeah. tossed. Go clutter up your own shop with it. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> well, a clut clutter yeah. transfer. And to be fair, like I get it. I mean, yeah, I think everybody knows we're a magazine. We have a photo set. We had these tools. A lot of this stuff that we cleaned out was considered photo props. Right. Perfectly functional tools. Mm -hmm. It's just they were kept in drawers. They were kept in cabinets to keep them nice for yeah. photos. But let's be real. How many people's shop? I mean, how many people have the stickers on their hammer still? You know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> it's that type of stuff. It's like, right. yeah, yeah. I, I understand it wanting to look nice and clean, but that's not reality. Yeah. So it was one of those yeah. things like, oh, don't need it anymore. I mean, if we need or I guess or the other option is or the other side of this dice is that if one of us does an article or one of us does a uh, technique or something a lot of times we bring our own stuff in for photos yeah so you know it's clean it out get rid of it mm -hmm. we only need so many belt tensioning meters <laughs> or torque torque readouts that are god this is the stuff that was in there was nuts yeah no so that felt pretty good and then I even did the same thing at home, going through my hardware cart and purged a bunch of stuff. Uh, some random um, stuff I just recycled. Some of it I just put out here on the free table since it was already going. So the problem is when you do that at your home shop and you put it on the free table, the kids just take it and it goes right back in. <laughs> exactly. Nice. So... The other thing that I did is uh, for one of the projects for season 15 of the TV show, 
which is going to start airing at least in Iowa and a few other places this month, next week, I believe, uh, is a cart, shop cart, that we called the Power Tool Cart. And the original plans had a series of small, shallow drawers or trays that you could pull out. And my part of the article or the episode was to customize it, create maybe think of some other ways that you could set up this cart. And one of them was to make a router bit rack. So I did that. But the one that I have here and that I'm showing on the YouTube version, and I'll take put a photo on the uh, show notes page, I laid out because I wanted it not just for router bits, but also like router wrenches, extra collets, uh, guide bushings, that kind of thing. So because uh, the bit racks that I've had were left over from another project that I don't use anymore, and it was just kind of a jumble. Mm-hmm. So I laid this all out on a piece of MDF and then uh, asked Chris to see if he could CNC all the holes, which was nice because there's a lot of holes in there. And the other thing that was nice is with the CNC, he could specify a specific size so that it's the holes for quarter inch bits are just slightly larger than a quarter of an inch so that the bits slide in easily, which is not something easy to do with drill bits unless you get like specific bits and there I wasn't going to get a you know number or letter bit or something mm-hmm. like that that was just larger just for this one thing so yeah. that was kind of fun yeah that's nice because usually you can find smaller bits within you know a 64th if it's a quarter inch but you get up to half inch and it's just half inch and then right. like you said you have to get a specialty bit and it's really not worth it, but yeah. So that's really nice that, yeah, that's all, has all the uh, places for your accessories and stuff. Cause usually that gets thrown in a drawer and rolls around yeah. or wrenches aren't easy to find. So, yeah. So anyway, it's kind of fun to be able to have that and now be able to find a little bit more order in my, in my shop there too. So so is all your routing stuff, because you don't have a full-size router table at home. Not yet. I'm contemplating making one, but we'll see. Okay. Um, is all your routing stuff going in that cart then? Uh, on not on the pullout, no. This, okay. this is more of like the wrenches, bits, that kind of thing. Cause I have another in my tool chest, I have a drawer, a deep drawer that I have whatever base is not on my router at the time, you know, sure. cause I have a small Bosch Colt and a Porter cable 690 and I have plunge bases for each of those. So whatever one is not currently being used is in that drawer. Same thing with like an edge guide, that kind of thing. And I, I only ask because that's been something I've been contemplating is at home, I have my Colt. I also have a 690. Um, my 690 only has a plunge base. Um, I don't have a fixed base for it. The Colt, I have the plunge base and the fixed base, but I also have it set up for the CRB7. Oh, yeah. From um, Empower Tools. And I yeah. really like that base. But... 
I also have my router table, and I have the woodpecker router table, and it's it's white. It's very white. It's geez, it has to be forty eight inches wide. It's huge, but there's a lot of storage underneath, or there's a lot of room underneath it, and. I keep thinking I need to do some form of built-in storage. I'm not... Mm, I have issues with the one we have on set. Like, yeah. I, I, I like the vertical drawers on it. Right. For the bits. But I feel like the center section doesn't function as it should. Okay. Or as well as it could, I get. I don't know. Yeah. I just... I, I, I'm not set on that design. So I was kind of... I'm going to kind of start researching some router storage options for underneath the woodpecker router table. Okay. That's fair. So wanted to kind of see what you were doing with yours. Yeah. No. So I just, that one is just for the cutting parts of the, of routing. Gotcha. So, so there you are. Yeah. All right, I think that wraps up another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Like I said, you can see some of the links to people and topics that we've been discussing and some photos of the things that we've been referring to. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel. There you can also leave any questions, comments, or smart remarks. If you'd rather, you can email us, woodsmith at woodsmith.com. You'll find the show notes page at woodsmith.com slash podcast. And you can subscribe to the podcast through all the usual channels. Uh, so I suggest that you do that and ask that you would do that as well as give us a good rating because it'll help us to get the Shop Notes podcast re recommended to other woodworkers like you who might enjoy it. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Bye, everybody. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Plants. You'll find nearly a thousand plans covering everything that you'd want to build. From furniture projects to gift projects, kitchen accessories, workshop projects and jigs, and more. Find your next project at woodsmithplans.com. <laughs>